You can go to Second Kings chapter 7, and I don't have much to share with you this morning, for I feel like God's already shared enough. I just want to encourage our, us in this word, and, and then we'll jump back into worship, and we'll close out the service. Does that sound like a good plan? Are you okay with that? Amen? That we can just spend some time with God and worship Him. Um, there's a lot of things happening in the church. There's some new faces here, and we'll, we'll go through all that. If you're new for the first time, see us at the end of service. We'd love to say hello and encourage you and get to know you and, and uh, just be able to journey together. And uh, our calendar will have so many different things happening, so you'll be able to check out all that stuff later on. The announcements have been on. You'll see it in the foyer, so God bless you with that. But if you open up 2 Kings chapter 7, and this thought, and I just feel like God's been encouraging it again and again. The question that came up as I'm reading this text is, you know, what have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? Ask your neighbor, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Nothing should be the answer. Absolutely nothing. Second Kings chapter 7, it tells us here, verse 1, Elisha replied, and he replied meaning there was something that happened before, and we'll get into that in a second, but he said, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, by this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. And the officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. What does this man have to lose? I feel like in this time where we live, this week, you know, I, I was excited yesterday, you know, Saturday, Friday, I don't even know what day it is anymore, Friday. I went, on, went to a wedding, got, had to do a wedding, and it was an incredible time, it was a great time uh, performing the wedding of a friend. And uh, it was an incredible cele celebration and ceremony, and um, it was awesome. And as I was there excited and celebrating and all that was happening and, and the festivities and the love and all that that was there, it was, it was incredible. And in the back of my mind, you know, you know, that scripture came back to us in the, in the, in the days of Noah, you know, it, just like in the days of Noah, they were giving in marriage and they were doing this and that. And, and yet there was something coming. There was something that was wrong. There was something. And it was an incredible service. And I, I'm not trying to take, you know, uh, anything away from that. It was a good time. But yet, that thought came into my mind. And all day yesterday, this idea in, in the thought of what's going on in the Ukraine and what's happening in our world, that right now, no matter what is happening around us, we're pursuing life, we're, we're advancing and accomplishing our goals and our dreams. And, and, you know, we're in this nation that we're incredibly blessed to, to chase the American dream. And we have so much opportunity at our disposal, so much that's available to us. And we are, you know, on a mission pursuing those things. And, you know, all of this is happening and yet God just kept putting on my heart look at the pain and the sorrow and what is there you know what are they experiencing in this moment 
And then that scripture came to my heart. Psalms 31, 21. That he has shown me the wonders of his love even while my city is in siege. And here we have in 2 Kings chapter 7, a city that is absolutely in siege. We find Elisha speaking to the king, speaking to the king's attendant, and he is speaking to them in a time where there is a city in siege right now. There is the, 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 um, ba- the, the, the instruments of war surrounding the city of Samaria. It's during a time in Israel where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are divided and there has been incredible sin and terrible kings and all sorts of of things that have led the people away, such as the days of Noah, where they were supposed to be seeking God. They were doing everything but that. And so calamity came upon them. And the Assyrians, the Arameans, uh, which today, in, in today's context, in today's geographies, is the region of Syria. The, those folks, the king Ben-Hadad, if you look back in chapter 6, had come and they had laid siege upon the Samaritans. They encircled the capital of the northern kingdom and they said, you know what, we are going to lay siege. We are going to block the walls. No one comes in, no one goes out, and we will stop the flow of food. We will not allow a single morsel to come through. No grain, no livestock, nothing. Nothing goes out, nothing comes in. And we will so deprive them of the sustenance that they need so that they will die off in the city or become too weak in order to resist us. And when they are so debilitated, so broken, then we'll come in and we'll take over the city. And so when this is all happening, The king is going around the city. It tells us that the famine was so, so terribly bad that if you read back in verse 25, if you read back in chapter 6, you'll find out that not only was there no flow of food, but the little bit that they had, the last reserves, the, the undesirable things that were left within the city, it became so inflated in price that they were spending over 80, 80 shekels of silver in order to buy a donkey's head to eat. I don't know about you, but when you eat an animal, you want the part that has a lot of meat on it. You don't want to buy something that's full of bones and no meat. And so they were spending 80 shekels of silver in order to get that. They were spending five shekels of silver to buy dung. They were buying manure. And you know what, there's, there's thoughts of that, that could have been an idiom for, you know, these types of seed pods. It could have been this or that, but it could have actually have been dung that they were buying in order to cook the very little that they had left because there was no fuel. And they're spending all this money and doing all this stuff, and it's gotten so bad that when the king is going around the city, what does he do? He finds people crying out, and they had gotten so depraved and so hungry, it was so bad that they decided to even start making packs. And he comes across a lady who cried out for him for mercy. She said, Lord, please have mercy, because I made a pack with this woman. We had two sons, and you know what? We decided that I will eat my son this day. We will share him, and the next day you we will eat your son and we did so on the first day and now she has hidden her son and I can't find him and I've lost mine but we won't lose hers Lord have mercy on me can you imagine it being so terrible that you're willing to 
cannibalize your own family. And when the king hears this, he tears his robes. He cries out to God and he gets mad at God. And he makes a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to the man of God, Elisha, and I'm going to, by the end of this day, take his head on a platter. Because this prophet has told me to wait upon the Lord and look at the situation on my city. And instead of this man crying out to God and asking God for mercy over his city and mercy over the circumstances and repenting of his ways and all of these things, we know that Jehoram, the, the son of the former king Ahab, one of the worst kings in all of Israel's history, he was not ready to ask for repentance. And so we get to verse 1. Elisha replied, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver, and so on and so forth. Instead of meeting this man with an incredible rebuke to say, you are wrong, you have led to this. If we go back to Deuteronomy and we read chapter 28, and you go and you read from about verse 49 to about 54, you will understand that all of this was prophesied, that it was prophesied that if you do not obey me and follow my ways, that I will send foreigners to ravage your land, that I would send those who are not part of you to come and lay siege to your cities, and it would get so bad that you would end up even eating your young, that mothers and fathers would turn on their children, and all of these things would happen. Instead of Elisha showing up and saying, hey, do you remember this part of scripture that you grew up hearing, that you know about, and and you have gone away and you've brought in idol worship and all these other things. And because of that, now this is happening. So instead of you coming to me all upset, why don't you hit your knees and start praying and ask God to have mercy upon you? No, he shows up and he says this. By this time tomorrow, the prices of all the food, not only will there be enough food within the city, but the prices of the food will revert back to pre-siege prices. And that just strikes me incredibly Hard. Why? Because I understand the fact, as we sang here in this song, that every one of God's promises, every one of God's provisions towards us is absolutely unmerited. Stop and think about this. When Adam and Eve were in that garden and Adam and Eve committed the sin and they disobeyed God and they chose to do everything within their own power and will and they said that I'm going to choose to trust in what the serpent has said and not what God has said and what they did at that point in time, they created alienation between God and man and at that moment, they became undeserving of every single one of God's actions that were about to ensue. But yet when God shows up in that garden, what does he do? Where are you, Adam? As if he has to ask the question. He knows where Adam is, and yet he shows up and he asks him and he finds out the details out of his own confession. And in that moment, what does God do after he pronounces the fact that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent? The proto-evangelion, when God first gives the promise that, the, that, that he would send some, forth his son one day, to bring restitution and resolution. He is giving that promise to a man and a woman who do not deserve to receive it. He commits uh, the sacrifice of an animal and he makes out of their skins clothes to hide their nakedness. He provides that for people that do not deserve it. 
And here comes Elisha. You're going to see the prices and the food run up in abundance. The prices are going to go down. The food is going to go up and you're going to be blessed. And it blows my mind that in that moment where people are eating other people, where there is no food, and people are dying by the hundreds within the city, when the official hears this word, what does he do? He doubts. He says to God, to the man of God, even if God were to open up the windows of heaven, this would not be the case. This cannot be done. Church, it blows my mind that when this man absolutely has nothing else to lose, he chooses to doubt God and say, no, thank you. Lord, have mercy on me. When you have poured out your plan of salvation and provision and you have given and laid it all out before us and you said, this is the way I wish that you would choose. I put before you today life and death and I hope that you would choose life that we say, you know what? I've got something to lose. Therefore, I don't want that. No, I have nothing. Nothing. Yet this man said, no, thanks. He doubted the power of God. He said, God cannot do this. There's no way that today there's a city that's completely surrounded by an army that is vast and powerful. They have all the resources, and therefore we don't have enough uh, soldiers. We can't get out of this. We can't get out of the city. There is no one coming to our rescue. There's no other you know, army out there. There's no allies. There's nothing. We cannot get out of this. So God, you cannot do what you're saying you're going to do through this servant of yours. Not only that, you can't, Lord, you're going to open up the, if you had to open up the windows of heaven and pour down food, he is doubting God's creativity. Can God not be creative in what he does? Has God not in his word provided meal for 5,000 out of five loaves and a couple of fishes? Has God not taken a rock and provided water for millions and millions of people in a desert? Did God not send, when there was no food in sight, a, a, a quail mageddon? He sent quail in a place that quail did not inhabit. And he fed meat to a people in the desert. Did God not do the incredible? He, he did so many time and time again. He did so many miracles. That is out of the box creative. Yet this man said, God cannot do that. And he says, you know what? You're speaking to me, Elisha, but you know, I don't believe it. Because I don't believe you, the man of God. When God speaks something, sure, we have to be careful and we have to be a little bit critical in the sense that we don't want to be had. We don't want to be taken for a ride. And so we need to qualify and quantify some things. Sure, no problem. Okay. You don't want to be, you know, duped. But uh, excuse me, who is this man that showed up before the king and spoke some things? Is this not the man that when he struck the Jordan, it parted and he walked through on dry ground? Is it not the man that threw something into a poisonous pot of stew and it became better and wholesome for everyone to eat? Is this not the man who threw a branch on the water and all of a sudden the axe head that was lost has become available 
for a man to pick it up as it floats above the water? Is this not the man who brought life back to the Shunammite's son when he died? Is it not the man who later on in his life would his very bones in his grave, when someone came in contact with it, they came back to life? This is a man that has the goods, who can pay the bills, who can cash the checks. This is a man who has been proven and has a track record of faithfulness and being spot on in God's word. Yet this man says, I have something to lose by trusting in this God that does something creatively, in trusting this man that has proven himself time again, in trusting this God that has the power to change circumstances. Why? Because there's a siege around me and I have not tasted that God's love is for me in the middle of this all. And I'm like, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, Lord, as we go into this mindset and we allow doubt to come into our lives. But just go one more verse. And Elisha responds back to him as he speaks out and he cries that he does not believe. Elisha says to the man, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. God have mercy. I never want to hear such words. Because if you're smart enough to read between the lines, that means that you're going to be gone. Your time is up. You have been weighed, measured, and found wanting. You're going to see it happen, but you won't partake of any of it. And just juxtapose that, just contrast that with the following verse. In the middle of a siege where there's nothing else to be lost, where there is nothing you can do in your own power, there's no aid coming to your rescue, yet God has promised his word. He has said in his word that something is going to happen. There is an incredible, phenomenal promise. There's a decision to be made. It tells us here that there were four men who were leprous. They had leprosy. They were sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die, is their question. Why should we just sit here and wait for death to come knocking on our door? Man, we are heading towards death anyways. Why should we just sit here and wait with open arms? We will starve if we stay here. But with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. If something happens and there's food, who do you think is going to get the first dibs on the food? Will it be the lepers hanging out outside? Those who've been cast away and cast off? If we stay here, we'll die. If we go there, we'll die. Okay, so why not? Might as well. Let's go surrender to these Arameans. Let's go surrender to these Syrians. Let's go to the enemy and say, hey, I give up. Have mercy on me, please. Can I have a cup of cold water and can I have a bowl of soup or something? If they, if they let us live, so much better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyway. Isn't it incredible when you don't have any options how clear the choice becomes? When there is no more options on the table, the choice becomes clear. And I feel like we have so many options before us. I can trust in this. I can trust in that. I have my 401k. I have my good looks. I have my reputation. I have my family. I have the salvation that I know my mom has. You know what? I'm riding on the coattails of my you know, family that are so faithful and pious. I have this. I have that. I have this. I have the government. I have my bailout package. I have this. 
I have all these things and I've got all these options. And yet these men said, we have nothing. And we're not going to sit here and go through the entire story, but I just want you to realize that these men, when they realized they had no options, they made a choice and they acted. And in the middle of a siege, God showed these men that he was faithful, that he was good. And I find it incredible that the man who was before the king, who had prominence and had authority, had power, he had, you know, the goods. He had so many options at his disposal in a previous life. He had connections to get options and resources and all sorts of things. Yet he is not the person by which the miracle and the blessing came through. But it flowed through these four leprous men who had a problem, who were rejected, who were the outcasts. Is that not like God to choose the lowly things of the earth to confound the wise? Is that not like God to choose the things that have nothing, who are nothing, who see themselves totally humbled before him, and he takes that humility and he exalts it to a place of prominence? These men decided, hey, let's just go, and they went. So they left, and they go onto this, this field, and as they're going out of the city and they're, they're reaching the camp of the Assyrians, they realize that, hey, there's not a soul in sight. I hear the animals, I hear the donkeys, I hear the horses, I see the armaments, I see the, the weapons, I see the, the choice flower, I see all the food that this army needed in order to, you know, be able to mobilize and attack and sustain its soldiers. It's all here. And where are the soldiers? Where are the soldiers? Look with me at, at verse 5. So at twilight they set out of the camp, and they got there at the edge of the camp. No one was there, for the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of great, a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us. They cried to one another. Church, I don't know how we're expecting God to move, but I am grateful that he's a God that's so creative in all of his ways, that he did not have to rally armies, actually, but that he just needed to send a sound. Imagine that, a sound, just a sound, and it caused fear within the enemy, and the enemy had to change their hearts, and they, they changed their minds, and they said, I'm abandoning this. And so in the middle of the night, in order to actually get away and feel like they were so, you know, they were about to be consumed and taken, uh, that they decided, let's leave all the animals so that the animals can continue to make their animal sounds. And that the army, the city, when they, when they realize that they still hear the animal sounds, they think that we're still here. Let's leave the fires burning. Let's leave the tents up. Let's leave everything so that it looks like we are still here. Let's get out of here because God is sending an incredible army to save these people. The Egyptians and the Hittites, these folks have come and they're going to completely annihilate us. Let's get out of here. Thank God that he is so creative in his ways. When we think that we can't get out of a circumstance or situation, God has already had so many different plans, so many different options at his disposal. We think that there's only one way to solve an issue. The windows of heaven have to be open and actual grain, actual barley, actual money, actual you know healing an actual vaccine an actual this or that has to come down from heaven in enough quantity and we will be saved yet god has an incredible resource storehouse where he can just do something incredible and nothing has to be released from heaven he can do it within our ears he can do it within our hearts he can do it within man and nothing needs to change 
around us, he can do it directly inside the heart of the person that has the issue. God, you know, what if, I wonder how, how other incredible stories we would have read in the Bible if people would just latch on to this idea. You know, imagine Rahab, and she, she, she had to lie to, to the leaders of, of Jericho and say, no, the spies aren't here. Imagine the midwives, they said, they lied to, to, to Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, no, they're not here. And, and, and no, we're, we're not going to do, we're, we're going to actually, these Hebrew women, they're too strong. We, we can't do anything. We can't kill these babies fast enough. Imagine if they had just trusted in God and decided, hey, he is creative in his ways and he can take me out of the circumstance in so many different ways. I'm just going to trust in him. God's done it before. He'll do it again. And I don't know whatever situation that you're going through, what you may be finding, what your siege may look like. Because maybe you are being attacked and bombarded with doubt and fear, with paralysis, with pain, with, with sickness or disease, with an impossible situation, with something that was just cruel and unjust that has happened to you. And it feels like it's an army around you and it's encircling you. But you know what? God is faithful and he is good and creatively he can change everything within your circumstance. He can make something happen. The sound of an army come into the midst of your challenge. He can make it sound like you've got all the money and the loan has been approved. <laughs> he, can, he can do whatever it is. He can open up the doors of favor and declare such incredible reputation over you in the mind of somebody else. And so they just open up the door for you. God can do it in such a way that we do not understand. He is faithful. And these men went out. And as they go out, they find that the camp is empty. They start seeing all the food. They start eating all of the, that they can and drinking all that they can. And then they find gold and silver and all these spoils of war. And they said, you know what? Hey, no one's going to take care of us later. So we might as well. We've been rejected. We've been abandoned. We've been outcasted. Let's take some of this stuff. Let's go hide it. Let's take it for ourselves and so that we can be well off later. And they do that for a while. They relish and, and, and they're excited in what they've encountered. But there comes a point in verse 9 where these guys say, finally, this is not right. This is a day of good news and we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. Church, this is an incredible image of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us, we have become like these lepers. And you know what? Thank God I'm not the man in the, you know, we don't want to be the man in the palace who says, I've got something to lose. And I'm not going to trust. I'm going to doubt. But most of us, we, we fall into the category of these leprous men where we have nothing. We don't deserve the blessing. We don't have anything within our power. We are broken and hurting, and God so chooses to use us to find the miracle. He chooses to, re to, to, to release his miracle and revelation for us where we come upon the great blessing, the great treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we find it, it, blend, it blesses and, and it benefits our lives. It changes us. Thank God that I'm not who I was. I'm a alive to tell the story of the goodness of God. We get to experience all that he does. He changes and transforms us. And then what do we do? We just get excited and fat on it. 
So many of us, we've received that and then we hoard it to ourselves and we want to keep it to ourselves and we're afraid to share it with somebody else or to bring it to those who are hurting. Yet all around us, there is a world that is lost and dying, who is hungry for the word, who is seeking something that is different, who wants something to be changed. And for some of us, we might have the same reactions as these guys. If we don't share this, something bad's going to happen. If that's what it takes, that's fine. Take it and run with it. But some of us, we get so excited. How many of you have eaten at a restaurant and it was so good that you could not stop talking about it? Amen. We, you know, we went to this wedding and uh, we had this wedding in one city and then we went for the rehearsal dinner in a city that was like about an hour away. And we're like, how does this make sense? In the middle of the work week, we're going to do this. But yet, here's the answer, and I loved it. it here's the answer. The, the, the bride and groom said, we are going to have the rehearsal dinner at our favorite restaurant. They wanted to share the joy of their favorite restaurant with all of those who would be part of their special day. They just could not say, you know what, we're going to go to any rinky-dink restaurant over here. We want to go to this restaurant over there. It's far away. It might be a little bit more costly, but we want to bring everyone there. Why? Because we just love this place, and it's an incredible, incredible meal. You guys are going to be blessed in it. We share that which we are excited for. So that makes me wonder, are we excited for the gospel? If we have not shared it with somebody else, is it, is it that we just don't value it and cherish it? You know, do we feel like we have other options and that we're going to get to heaven or be saved or, or encounter our freedom, our salvation, our transformation in any other way? And so we feel like we have other things that we can offer. But yet, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father if not for me. It says that the man who found the treasure in the field, he, he buried it. And he went and he worked. He accumulated. He sold everything he had. He did all of that so he could have enough to buy the field and by extension and also take possession of that treasure that was there. The man who found the pearl of great value, he sells everything else. Why? Because this is of greater value. I'm choosing this. Some of us, we've encountered the gospel, and yet we have just allowed it to stay within our homes, our lives, within the confines of our own needs. And there's a world around us that needs the gospel of Jesus. There's a world around us that needs to hear the word of God. And that's all that this scripture offers. It offers a promise. It offered a promise. Tomorrow, by this time, you will have all the food that you could ever ask for. And the prices will be reverted back to this price and that price. You are having a word. And that was a promise that the, the man of God gave. It represented the word of God. And when we encounter the word of God, we either can accept it or we will doubt it. But you know one thing? If we choose to doubt, there's a consequence and a price. The Bible tells us after they, these guys share the news, they couldn't go in the city, so they called out to the ones on the city walls. The ones on the city walls went and called out to other soldiers, and other soldiers went and took it to the king, and finally the king received that word. He didn't receive it with excitement either. We can read more about that later on in the text, but he says, you know, maybe this is a ploy, maybe this is a trick, so you know what, let's send out some chariots, let's send out the last remaining horses that we have, because spoiler alert, they ate all the horses. There's no food. 
So there's about five horses left in the entire city. Think about that. How are you going to have an army fight in chariots and go out in an army and fight and, and have a war and you have no charioteers, you have no horses, no riders, and your people are famished, hungry, and broken? This could be a trick. So he doesn't go out. He doesn't believe the word, but he tests it. Okay, fine, test it. And eventually the soldiers go out and they find that all the spoils of war were there. As the soldiers were leaving and fleeing the, the, the camp, they were taking off their armors and throwing things down. And so finally, the king says, there's food out there. He turns to the man who said, no way God could open up the windows of heaven and release this blessing. And he says, I want you to go at the city gates. Help us to manage this. This, this is going to be an incredible moment. Everyone is hungry. People are hurting. People are dying. We've lost so many people today. Man, if we had just gone out earlier today, maybe we could have saved a hundred or so people. We could have saved thousands of other people because they died today. Today was the last day that they could hold on. If we had just gone out earlier. We could have saved more, but hey, now is the time. I want you to go to the city gates, and I want you to control this thing and manage, oversee this thing. I want you to go out there, and I want you to help the distribution of the food. And when the people found out, what would you do if you haven't eaten and you've been seeing incredible things of, uh, of depravity and incredible hunger and people doing things that are unconventional and, and, and eating things that you would never eat because they were just so desperate and hurting? What would you do if you heard in that moment and circumstance, that there's food just on the other side of the wall. Excuse me, uh, uh, can, can we all make a line, please? Uh, hey, you're cutting. Can you get back over here? Hey, forget you. I'm going to trip you, and I'm going to run over here, and I'm going to get that food first. It's like, how do you survive a bear attack? You outrun the person running next to you. I'm just kidding. I'm not a survivalist. I have no idea how you do it. But I heard that, and I thought it was funny. But here's the deal. These guys hear that there's food. What did Elisha promise the king? There's going to be food. It's going to be cheap. The guy who doubts it, he says, you're going to see it. You're going to look at all that food. You're going to see the prices go back down. You're going to see it all and you're going to savor and want it. Your, your mouth is going to water because you're just so close and you want to have it, but you will not partake in it. The Bible tells us later on that after the crowds found out, this man had been appointed and they're going out. It tells us verse 17, so everything happened exactly as the man of God predicted. When the king came to his house, the man of God had said to the king, by this time tomorrow, the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one silver piece. And 12 quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver. The king's offer had replied, uh, the king's officer had replied, it couldn't happen even if God opened up the windows of heaven. And the man of God said, you will see it, you won't taste it. And why? Because in that mad rush for everyone to go out there and get their food, he became the person that got trampled by the crowd. See, there's a cost to our unbelief. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Incredible verse, most quoted verse in all the Bible. 
Yet if you go just one more verse, a couple more verses down, you'll understand that that blessing comes with a responsibility. And it tells us that if we confess him, if we choose to believe in him, if we were to confess God, if we believe with our hearts and confess with our lips that Christ is Lord, then shall we be saved. There's a cost that we have to pay. We have to take it and receive it, and we have to lean on God. Why? Because, hey, I have nothing else to lose. If this thing is false, what did I do? I gained some values, some virtues. I lived my life above reproach. What's so bad about that? But you know what? If we look at this Christianity thing and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we have to live our lives worthy of the gospel, that we have to actually sacrifice some things, take up our cross and walk and follow after him, if we actually do that and say, you know what? None of that actually is true, and we live our lives as if it isn't. And at the end of it all, if it happens to be true, what do we lose? We lose everything. But if we just say, you know what, I've got nothing to lose in trying to believe this and in, in, in walking with this and trusting God that he can do things, that he has made promises, that he has declared some things, then you know what, we will experience what these men experience. That in the middle of my city being in siege, I have tasted of the love of God, of the wonders of God. Church, I'm going to invite the team to come up and we're going to praise God together just for a little bit longer. But I want you to stop and I want you to close your eyes and just consider what is your situation and your circumstance. See, it's the word of God that we have as a promise. It's his word. And in this word, there are promises beyond promises. It tells us in Psalms 55, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. Praise the Lord, my soul. You don't forget all of his benefits, who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Psalms 103. What does he say in 1 Peter? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you, Deuteronomy 20. See, God has made some promises. I shall never leave nor forsake you. I shall make you the head and not the tail, that you will be, uh, that, you, that he's going to prepare a place for you in the presence of his father, that where he is, you shall be with him also. That we don't mourn as this world mourns. Why? Because we have the blessed assurance of salvation and a life after here. There's promises in this book. I don't know what promise you need to lean on. That, you know what, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That he will give, pressed down, shaken together and running over. In the measure in which you give, so shall it be measured back to you. There are promises within this word. That if you seek them, you shall find them. If you knock, the door shall be answered. If you ask, you will receive an answer. That if you pursue him with all your heart, you shall find him. There are promises within this book. That he's coming back for a spotless and wrinkless bride. There are promises within this book. And it's the word of God. And in times of siege, in times of sorrow, what is it that we need? We need to lean into his word. And we have to discard doubt. What do you have within your own power? Nothing. What do you have to lose if you just trust him? Nothing. So what? They're going to ridicule you. That's not persecution, by the way. Persecution is people who are actually losing their lives because of what they believe. 
Persecution is not being able to go back home or not have a family and be rejected and discarded because you chose to align yourself with Christ. That's persecution. So what, what do we have to lose? Right now in the Ukraine, there are men and women who are, you know, worshiping God in the subway system. There are crowds of people gathering and praying and seeking God. And in the middle of war, as God is besieging that city, and, and uh, not God, but, but the, you know, the enemy is besieging that city. In God's sovereignty and plan, this has come to what it is. There are people who are crying out and saying, I'm going to taste and see of God's goodness and faithfulness. The Ukraine Bible Society said that they've printed out so many different Bibles and it's the second month of the year, they're all out. There are people flooding and flocking to their, the stores to get Bibles and they don't have any more. In times of sorrow, in times of sickness, in times of need, in times of uncertainty, what do people most need? They've got nothing else to lose. We need a promise from God. And if we stand upon his word, things will change. Circumstances will be reverted. I was reading an article and it was talking, this, this man from the Ukraine Bible Society had said that they are so desperate for Bibles. The churches in their nation are being filled with people. They want to pray. They want to receive comfort. They're, they're finding community in the middle of hostility. It's a really good opportunity to ask people what is real. And the main priority in life, what is it? Because circumstances have pushed people to think about more than only their material, daily life. What do you have to lose? It's all being lost anyways. The security of your home, the banks, this, that, whatever, the way of life that you've always had, it's all being lost right now because everything is in upheaval. What do you have to lose? That's why they're flooding and flocking to the churches. They had a meeting, they, they planned a church service where they got together with different denominations. There was over a thousand people there in one of the oldest cathedrals and 45,000 joining online. They're seeking God and his word. But not just on Sundays and Saturdays, they're also coming during the week on evenings when we have a Bible study. We have new people coming. They want to pray. They want to hear something that brings hope and comfort. People grapple with the unknown and the uncertainties of what's happening around them. And in those moments, the question becomes, what do I have to lose if I just trust in God? What do you have to lose? What promise do you have to lean on to? What is it that God wants to do and say and speak into your life and situation? Father, what we experienced here just before I got up and shared what I feel you put on, our, on my heart, Lord, it's just a glimpse of us realizing that we have nothing to lose when we trust in you. That God, you have something more to do inside of us and you have more, you have creative power, you have ability. You can do something with nothing. Lord, I don't know what your people are experiencing here this morning. But I ask you, Lord, whatever scripture was penned all those years ago for this exact moment, that you would bring it to their hearts 
that God, this week, as they're spending time in your word, that you would make it pop up out of the pages of their Bibles and just arrest their heart, Father, where they could sing like the psalmist, while the city is in siege, I have tasted of God's love. You are ministering your word of promise in the middle of my turmoil. God, release it upon your people. Pour out your spirit. Remind them of your word. And if there be any person here today, Lord Jesus, that they've never said yes to you, they've never, Lord God, invited you to be a part of their lives, where they have counted the cost and said, I actually have nothing to lose. I've tasted everything else of this world. I've given this a try and that a try. I've tried drugs. I've tried lust. I've tried pornography. I've tried, you know, wealth. I've tried power. I've tried this. I've tried that. I've tried relationships. I've tried, Lord God, all of these things that I could accumulate materialistically. And Lord God, relationally and vocationally. I've tried it all, Lord, but yet still I feel empty and hopeless. And I am hungry for something different. Lord, I pray that today. They would say, I have nothing left to lose. And pray this simple prayer and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Let me not be like this king and this official who were doubtful. But let me trust in your promise that you died a sinner's death while you were sinless. You paid the price so that I could be forgiven. And because you laid down your life, but then took it back up again in the resurrection, you have the power to save me. So I give you my heart and my life. I ask you to lead me through. Walk with me. Help me to choose you and trust in your word. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.